on today's show, we are getting to know Brian. But first, promos and pleases. Andre Psyche is the freelance creator extraordinaire, someone who makes music, poetry, art, clothing, and lives to make others feel good. Search him up, Andre Psyche, and add a little creative inspiration to your social media circle. Listeners, listen up. Get 25% off your order at ShadyRays.com by using the promo code GETTING. Use GETTING when checking out to get 25% off on the best sunglasses around. Shady Rays takes extreme pride in their multi-layered lens technology, which is made for high visibility and strength, making it shatter-resistant. Go get you a pair or two by going to ShadyRays.com, perusing their polarized sunglasses, then using the promo code GETTING. When you check out, it'll save you 25% on your order. Please subscribe to the Getting to Know You pod on whatever app you're listening on. Please give a five-star rating. Please take some time to write a review. Please friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on social media. Pretty, pretty please tell someone about the pod. All of your clicking, linking, sharing, rating, reviewing, starring, tagging, and simple old school speaking about the pod is greatly appreciated. And now, getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you. Putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely and doggone it. my cup of tea. And Brian, I actually am not sure if you know this or not. You were the 184th guest and you were kicking off what would be season four of the Getting to Know You pod. So thank you, Brian, for coming on, man, letting people get to know you. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, man. I always feel like it's a good thing to be the pilot episode or not, maybe not pilot episode, but, you know, first episode Inaug- of the new season. Yeah, inaugural. Get it going the right way. Right. Yeah. I, um, so we spoke on the phone for a little bit before and, um, you're a Cali guy. So I'm actually planning a trip this summer to go to San Jose. So Lake Tahoe, fly into Reno, drive to Lake Tahoe, spend a couple days. And then I'm like, where do I go in California? And it seemed like it's just so fucking big compared to Delaware. Yeah, it's much, much bigger than Delaware, uh, that, that's for sure. Um, I'm actually down in Southern California, uh, just south of Long Beach. Kind of grew up here, uh, left for a while, came back. So you're going to have a great time in Tahoe, though, I'll tell you that much. It's a beautiful place. Yeah, is it? So, and I know nothing but what the internet tells me. Like, am I foolish for doing like three days there and then wanting to drive to like San Jose or... um? There was a town like Eureka that was seven miles away. I don't want to go to Los Angeles. I feel like no, it's just dirty no. and the, like I hear terrible things about it. I um yeah, I'm a big fan of not living in Los Angeles. I, I did <laughs> live there for a handful of years, and I'm extremely glad to not be there anymore. And to your point, yeah, dirty would be an understatement. I mean, it's getting close to not being able to walk around walk around a corner down the street without you know worried about someone doing something crazy. It's uh, it's not my favorite place either. I mean, if I were you, a few days in Tahoe, San Jose is great. I mean, if you wanted to hit San Francisco, you could, but also a little sketchy as well these days. Yeah, I forget the 
guy's name, but he's been on Rogan's podcast and he wrote, he actually ran for governor of California. Um, he wrote San Francisco. Yeah. Fallon Burger, maybe. That's, that's feels right. I don't know if it is right, but it feels right. I thought it was Michael something, but the Sheldonberger something is good. But just yeah. the, the, the compilation of speaking to everyone there that's homeless and like depraved and the mental state, it just seems so weird. And then I see like the flash mob, like robbing and like the law of, Hey man, if it's under $900, you just kind of get to do it. Yep. And it blows my mind, man. It just seems so unsafe. I've, I'm taking my 13 year old daughter and I'm like, I don't want her in that yeah. sort of environment. Yeah, I probably wouldn't uh, head too much into the San Francisco area. And I actually read that book uh, that you're referring to. And it's it's pretty wild, like hearing the stories of these people he's interacting with and like you know, hearing their stories and what they're doing while they're out on the streets. It's not, you know, it's not a good thing. It it seems exact. The title is so good. Like it just seems sick and demented and absolutely like arrestable. Hundred <laughs> percent. Well, I mean, California. I, th I think it was it was in two thousand one, two thousand two. California had like a six hundred and fifty million dollar budget to combat homelessness, and it got worse. Like it's 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 you know. But then again, we're handing out crack pipes. We're you know letting people just be homeless and do crazy stuff on the streets, and it's just. It's sad, you know, and it's why I think a bigger part of the reason why you're seeing a lot of people from the San Francisco area, the L.A. area, flee to other states. Yeah, I thought it was like half a million um, yeah, in the article. That I think just, that's right. Just came out. And that's I don't know if that's a dent in like the tax base, if that'll even matter. But you I don't know. You would think you would that would lead to some sort of institutional change. Yeah, I, I mean, one can only hope, but it's, what? you know, it's it's such a blue state and has been That's for so long i'm like they were it's, they were like fuck yeah man all those voters are gone we got like a 20 yeah. percent margin now <laughs> yeah all, all the people that were gonna that were voting against us are leaving like, it's great exactly. plan worked exactly then they're going to places like texas and florida and uh, colorado wyoming not as much colorado but you know places where i think it seems to be run more um efficiently and you know Pro people versus pro state government. Yeah, pro system. It um. Yeah, pro system is a good way of putting it. Yeah. All right. So San Jose, huh? You think that'd be a good little two, three days? Because it's four yeah. hours, and I was like, instead of driving for seven or eight, I was looking for a city that um would be close, but it didn't seem like a overpopulated city. It seemed like it had space. If that it's not sense. bad, and it's not bad. I, I I haven't spent too much time in San Jose. I highly recommend not going to Stockton. Uh, no Stockton. Ugh. What's Stockton? Um, sorry, what was that? Oh, what's Stockton? Like a, a town or is that a spot in San Jose? It's a, it's a, no, it's, it's a town, um, like kind of in the, a little bit in the boons, like probably an hour outside of uh, San Jose. That's just, you know, nothing to see. Kind of, it's like a miniature version of Los Angeles where it's just like homeless is all over the place. It's kind of just run down. Okay. Um, there's some good pieces there, but it's not worth going. Uh, San Jose would be a cool day, to, a cool place to spend two or three days, I think. You could definitely occupy yourself with enough. And that's awesome. Um, you're going to go with your daughter. So like a week-long trip, something like that? Yeah. Um, kick off June um, or kick off summer break. So I'm a teacher. So maybe last week of June into first week of July. Right. That's awesome. That'll be a good way to start. Yeah. You'll re I think you'll really like Tahoe. Yeah. Furthest west I've been um, thus far is Denver, Colorado. Um, which, oh, wow. Yeah. Then uh, not too often. Mostly like an East Coast trip guy. Um, but okay. 
Denver, favorite spot so far, Nashville, but Denver, it's like, have you ever been an East Coast person? Oh, yeah. Oh. Uh, I mean, I, I lived in New York for a very brief period of time, um, like six months or so for work uh, when I was in my mid-20s. Uh, it's kind of the perfect amount of time. I got a little like burnt <laughs> out uh, by the end, but uh, I mean, I've traveled to Florida, traveled uh, Alabama, uh, not too far oh, east okay. other than New York, spent a little time in Boston. That's one thing about... Froze up for a second. Hopefully it'll come back. Halt on all that. As soon as you talk shit on New York, it froze up on you. Somebody's listening. Okay. <laughs> that last thing I heard was of Alabama and then a little bit of time in Boston. Yeah, and nothing too crazy. Um, but my wife and I, we both love to travel, um, especially internationally. Um, I've been all over Europe. I've been Africa a few times. One of the coolest trips of my life actually was South Africa uh, with my mom when I was 15. Um hit Moscow uh, after I graduated college. Uh, I, I've, I've been fortunate to, you know, travel quite a bit and see a lot of things. Yeah, so then that's the difference is like, I leave Delaware and you get to these places with just space and like no trees, like, like line. It's like oceans yeah. of land, man. It, it's, it's yeah. fucking intimidating. Yeah, it's, it is wild. Um, it's just, I don't know. I, I'm, I was a, political science major in college but and i uh fortunately have been able to see almost all of them and you know you know we have my daughter's gonna be two next month so uh, since she was born uh it's been a little tough to do any international traveling and we actually have another one coming um later this year so uh we'll probably we're probably uh putting the big travel on the back burner for right now but um it's just something I've been fortunate enough to do over the course of my life. Are, are the trips like politically motivated? Are you going to see or like gain better understandings of systems government yeah. or you just like want to go shoot things? Uh, I just want to go see, be, I want to go to places in terms of the international travel um, where, you know, extremely important historical events have happened. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a student of history. I love learning about history and then kind of contrast that with the trips I've taken to Africa. My family is always like, like we talked about on the phone, um, been big into philanthropy. Um, and that actually got started about 20 years ago with my mom. Um, when she was pregnant with me, she got a false positive HIV test and, uh, obviously freaked her out, but you know, thank God she, it turned out to be a false positive. And so she became very passionate about, um, you know, providing help to mothers in, you know, underpoverished areas, but, it, you know, HIV positive mothers, you know, that are potentially going to be um, passing it along to their kids. And so my mom got involved with that in South Africa with a foundation called Mothers to Mothers. Um, and coincidentally, my wife's sister is a missionary in Kenya um, she's a nurse and she provides unbelievable support to uh, communities out there in Turkana. So we, uh, it's just something that we believe a lot in and traveling to see some of the work that we've been able to do. is just, it's, it's a pretty special thing. Um, that's a lot, man. I've always admired people who like reach out like that, but I have no idea how you would start. Like, can I just decide to go there? Is it a vetting process? Is it like, um, 
Uh, you mean to go to Kenya or South yeah, Africa? Yeah, like if I like, how do I get involved into a group to go do something like that if I want to? Like, are they flipping the bill? Do I have to save up a ton of money? You know, it's so it's a uh, a lot of it is is done through Christian organizations. Like at least in terms of what my wife's done, like they, uh, I mean, do, you'll have to save up some money and you know, but they'll put together kind of a program for you to do while you're there for two weeks or whatever it is. Okay, and uh, like. My wife and her brother a few years ago went to a place called Turkana in Kenya and helped build homes for three weeks. Um, one thing I'm, I'm personally extremely passionate about is water. A buddy of mine and I have a running joke that water is literally the greatest thing on the planet. It's not even close. Um, and there are places and you know, villages in Africa that don't have access to clean water. They got to hike miles to go to, to a well and pump some clean water out and they probably lose a third of it on the walk back sloshing around in buckets. And so that's something that my wife and I have pledged to do every year for the next few years is we're going to donate a, a clean well, at least one clean well a year in this Turkana region in Kenya. That's something that we, uh, we're proud of. I've, I've never known, I don't know if you know the answer, but like why is digging the well so hard as is? <sighs> I can't give you too deep of an answer on this one, but certain well like certain areas you need a more powerful drill to get down deep enough to where you need to get the water and so part of its location and i mean the other part of it would be the lack of that kind of equipment i mean it's not like you know they're swimming in uh the drills needed to construction drill these boreholes in, in in kenya so uh there's a lot that goes into it but um it, you know i couldn't provide too much of it background on that gotcha so then the commitment's just basically you're gonna like sponsor a company to go over there and drill it's a non-profit it's a non-profit christian organization that we work with that um and in my it's the same uh, organization that my sister-in-law um is a missionary through we know them we like we, we know they're doing the right things and uh, they they it's their equipment that and so basically it's here's the cost of a well and they go build it okay yeah, I um, it's something we take. We have a pretty low uh, water table here. Like I have a well for my house, and I think I hit water within like twenty feet, maybe oh, twenty five wow. feet. I mean, it's not a big deal at all to um have right. running water. And I can't imagine Africa or even like if you're a thousand feet above sea level, is there an aquifer that's above sea well trap somewhere, or do you? Your guess is as good as mine on that. It's just you know. Uh it's not an easy thing to do. And especially, I mean, it's so arid and dry out there and hot. It's, it's, it's not easy, but anyway, that's travel for me has always been about, you know, love my love of history and seeing these different places where like standing in red square in Moscow and, you know, getting a, a go, getting a tour of the Kremlin and, you know, seeing the room where they signed like some of the big treaties uh, in the cold war and uh, going through Lenin's mausoleum. And, and it's just, it's, you know, it, not that I'm a, big Russia supporter or anything like that. It's just, this was such a big, uh, if like piece of history over the last, you know, 80 years that, uh, I just always was fascinated by it. Uh, and so that's kind of the, where the mixture of my travel love comes from. It, it, it's fun. I've been reading about the Mongolians and how they spread. And then, um, it was fucking vast, man. And I guess they, like the Mongols were in charge of Russia. For a while like a couple hundred years it was their part of their territory and something that is very hard for me to understand would be the aspects of 
like distance and size and right. impact. Like you read it in a book, but not being there and not having traveled, I don't know if I actually appreciate how big of a deal it is to conquer a city. Like when I try to picture these places, I'm like, oh, so they built a wall in the 1100s to trap an entire city. I'm like, ah, is that a big deal? Was that a lot? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, some of the, and especially in those days, I mean, some of the, it's just pure savagery, yeah. you know, they're just doing whatever they need to do to survive. And it's just, it would get, you know, building walls. It's just funny. This is funny to even hear about that. Like thinking about today's world and like, I mean, now it's just, it's, you know, how, how, how much time has evolved, not time, but you know, society has evolved in terms of technology. I mean, we were, Rolling. I mean, we had what the first phone. I don't even remember when. Seventeen hundreds, and then we didn't even have the internet until thirty years ago. Like, and now look where we're at. Yeah, that was um, part of what the Mongols got really famous for. I don't know if they invented the printing press, but part of what they were trying to do was figure out a standard language with letters, so that they could reproduce knowledge. Okay. Because part of what they wanted, they hated the elitist culture. And I think right. they like were the first culture to establish public schools because they were so merit-based right. and they just wanted people with ideas to do shit so that they could take right. it and sell it. And I'm like, it's kind of yeah. capitalistically ruthless, but yeah. at the same time, it's such an opportunity because it's not about who you were okay. born into. It's about what you can do. Correct. And, uh, yeah, that's, it's such a great point. Um, cause I mean, you fast forward to today. I mean, you see, I would say you see today, it's a lot of it, a lot of it is still about who you were born into or who, who, who you know, and that sort of thing. And the elitist kind of culture. Yeah. it's uh, a, That's a big fast forward there. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big jump. Yeah. I was, um, I'm almost ending the book now, but I got to the section and I'll forget the um, people's names, but I think it's kind of funny. The one dude was a French guy in the 1700s. He had a real name, but then it was like Compitant de Buffoon. And he was the first person I think to like, start like trying to trace characteristics and like organize people as you do animals. And he rewrote history or he was like, I think it might've been like the first encyclopedia of history. And basically it was like 500 years removed from when the Mongols were really dominant. And he just like shit on them. And he gave them this like savage title. And he was completely dismissive of them being like for equal women's rights and for religious right. tolerance. And actually they're completely against bloodshed. It goes against their religion. And they were against right. corporal punishment because they wanted fines and they wanted you to just right. be at ease because you outnumbered them. So they needed to like, I think it was a thousand to one in most societies. So they couldn't, they wouldn't be able to maintain power if the people revolted. So they had to ensure opportunity and happiness. And then this dude comes along and it made me realize this is the first book I read where I like admire the Mongols and any other point in my life, I would have been like, yeah, they were savages on horses that just killed and plundered and raped. And they were the worst people in the world. And it's like, nah, man, they were actually very helpful to the world. And this dude named Buffoon got to literally rewrite history. <laughs> yeah. Right. And like, I just find it awesome that he's a buffoon. Like that's his name. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. I was like, is Perfect. that where the connotation for the word buffoon comes from? Because like somebody you fact checked him and was you like, they were like, wait a minute, this guy knows nothing. Uh, that's, that's too funny. Yeah. It, um, I don't know if it's completely accurate. Cause again, it's just some other person writing about him. Um, but it, 
it really made me think about how like, if you don't go and if you weren't a part of it, you're so relying on other people's perspectives. No question. I mean, you're, you're almost, I mean, it's so hard to even get firsthand source to stuff like that. Uh, I mean, you're relying on usually second or third hand uh, source information. And at that point it's been diluted and, you know, who knows what, if you're getting anything remotely close to the real story, like in the case of our buffoon and the Mongols. Yeah. Yeah. They are, man, it got, it, it's so interesting. Cause then this one German guy, um, started like classifying and basically now Mongols, which to me has like a real negative connotation. He connected them with, um, in the book they had called them retarded, but I'm assuming it's like a severe inbred, almost like a, a down syndrome type right. face and he took all these characteristics and he just associated with the mongols because of some like nose measurement and you're like the disrespect that happened to this society this culture in like 75 years because these guys some... just made these weird connections and they were accredited like they were scholars of their time and you're like they're trusted these are world leaders these are best-selling books in a time of limited information and you're shaping the way Genghis Khan and his ancestors are remembered. That's some that's some Nazi eugenic shit there with the whole Dude. like measuring of the nose and shit like that. It's uh, it, it's wild. It's and, very and, yeah, weird to read. It's it, it cra especially crazy, like you said. These guys are scholars, like uh, apparently well respected scholars, and they're doing things like that to shape history's view of an entire. Not even populate. I don't even know a, a nation of people. Yeah, dude. It, yeah, it, yeah. It um. I don't know. It. it well, because the word Mongol does not have a positive connotation. Like you hear the word Mongol, you don't think happy. Like you don't. That's not like a happy word. Right. It's definitely not the people who um, I don't know. Were pragmatic and inventive, and like were for the sharing of ideas and free. Yeah, they enslaved. <laughs> A bunch of people, and I believe they got everyone enslaved back then. I feel like, but that was yeah, kind of the point. It was almost like the accepted practice. Um, it was to just conquer and then force labor. But the fact that they respected ideas, they came up with like paper money. They were the first system because yeah. they were like, "Hey, man, if we're going to travel, it's so much more efficient to go through mountains with less weight. Why don't we do that?" Yeah. And you're like, "Brilliant idea." <laughs> yeah, why do we need to carry around sacks of heavy coins? Like, yeah, right. But like none of that, none of that in my education until I picked up this book, none of that like yeah. came through anywhere. And like even in any references, like in movies or pop culture or anything, it's just all death, destruction and like no acknowledgement of the intellect and the foresight and the ability to organize and run a system, a government. I think humans have a very good ability to um, – kind of ignore the things that are inconvenient about their past. And so, you know, the fact that the Mongol, they decided, you know, these quote unquote scholars and people after them associated the Mongol with so much negativity. It's like, do we really want to readdress that as a society, like as a, like a global society? Like we can just leave up. We can, you know, go on. Like yeah. pretend it never happened. <laughs> well, I guess, and that's funny. Cause I started thinking about the Mongols when you brought up you being in Russia and it, Maybe wonder about like your safety. So when you're traveling internationally, do you get like translators or do you speak several languages? How do you feel just out like with the lack of 
knowledge, like aware, I want to say aware, linguistical awareness. Would that be the way to right. word it? Like just not knowing what motherfuckers are whispering. So one part of that is uh, usually people are actually pretty good internationally about speaking English, for, which always helps. Um, I don't know Russian. I don't know German. Um, but every time I've been to Germany, I, 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 there are, I have friends that live in Germany and they're native yeah we cut out the, a bit it might be my cheap delaware internet <laughs> no you're good no you're good so all i said was um just like when i'm you know i don't speak russian i don't know anyone in russia uh we went on i actually was on that trip with my father and we did a few private like private kind of tours and you know so we have an english-speaking guide with us um which makes it a lot easier and then other than that it's just kind of us exploring you know going around and seeing different things and you know like if we have questions we can ask and try to ask someone but you know walking around I, like safety wise i don't i, I, I walking around russia even uh, moscow even the probably not so best parts of moscow i mean i i, I never actually felt unsafe I, i've never once felt unsafe in germany um i've been to multiple cities in germany i've never once felt unsafe same with italy um been to multiple places in italy i, I don't know it's I, uh, I've always kind of had a good sense of tactical awareness. Like just kind of like I hear and see things like, and you know, you can hear more even from tone of voice and, you know, the way someone's talking than even without necessarily understanding them. Like you can kind of tell if someone's got bad intentions and you just, you know, just tactical awareness. Um, and then South Africa, there's actually quite a few English speakers. So that was, that's, that was convenient. But, um, yeah, in terms of safety, um, I mean, I, I'm a gun owner. I, I have a nice little, I have a nice little collection of blades. Obviously I'm not taking those internationally because <laughs> <laughs> obviously, <laughs> but I don't ever feel, I've, I haven't ever really felt unsafe. I felt unsafe in Paris once, which was a little weird, but that was, uh, I was on a trip right after I graduated high school with three or four other friends and the girls that we were with kind of got into a weird situation and we had to go kind of just get them out of it. But that was it. I mean, outside of that, I, I can't say that I felt unsafe really anywhere I've been. It's super interesting. And that is another thing I started realizing in life is like universal, like truths, like the smile, a gentle touch. And you're like, it's comforting. You know, like there are basic just things that we communicate as humans with each other that you can kind of forget that it's like, oh, yes, I could just nod. For some reason, you're not, nodding. You're not a threat. Yeah, is like, you're not a threat. That's yes. I'm like, is anywhere a nod up and down a no? I don't think so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not that I know of. And uh, the other thing, too, that kind of ties into that is, you know, when there's people, like, you make eye contact with someone on the street. And, you know, I, I've always been, I think people these days, especially in the United States, um, you walk around, you make, you just kind of happen to randomly make eye contact with a stranger on the streets. And like, I notice most people just kind of keep their, like they, like they look away real quick and they keep their eyes forward and put their head down. I'm like, yeah. and I'm always the type that'll all give them a little nod, just like to acknowledge their presence. Yeah, right. Like, what's up? Hey, just like, Hey, like, like I'm not going to say like, hey, stop them and try to have a conversation. Just like, Hey, like I see you, like you're a human. I'm a human. Like we can just, you know, acknowledge the fact that we made eye contact and keep walking and like, go on with our day. And I think, um, yeah, like you said, there's many subtle body language and body cues um, that I think are very universal. Um, to your point, like a not like a nod being um, 
that that usually means yes. I haven't found anywhere it means no anymore at this point in time. But um, and I mean, sure, you're gonna probably get get someone that you're interacting with who like you're trying to understand what they're saying and they are trying to tell you something and they kind of make fun of you like oh silly American blah blah blah. Right. It's like but like you just kind of just laugh and just say hey like whatever like um but yeah i uh it's 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 a great point you made though about that kind of universal language of uh, just little subtle head movements body movements hand even hand signs right um you know it's it's actually i mean it's primitive but it's brilliant yeah it it almost um it similar to i have a, a labrador golden uh golden retriever and um, it's it's just like amazing, dude. Never had to teach it. I just threw a ball, fucking ran and brought it back to me, and then just sat there and was like, "I'll do this again if you want." Yeah. And you're like, you're I'll not, do this all day. You're just not gonna run away. And it's like, what is in you that that got communicated through your genes or whatever? And it seems like we have a little bit of that with our language and ability to just communicate it, it's it, i don't know man it's so interesting when you think about how diverse the world is and how Absolutely. long people have been around and it like hasn't evolved out of us you no. know like a wink hasn't evolved not out of us it's, it's not yet not yet until the robots take over but that's down that's down the road so Elon, i know right till the uh neural link comes in and then yeah. we don't have to God. then we're just vegetables <laughs> And we're in society as we know, whatever. That's a whole different conversation. Um, but no, you're you're right. I'm curious about the food in Russia. So I have like two places I never want to go: Russia and like Ireland, Britain. And my last name's O'Grady, so I feel kind of bad being like don't want to go to Ireland. But when I travel, I just want to eat really well. And I feel like this may be I might be completely wrong about this, but I believe the food in Russia and Ireland to be like not even desirable. So. You're, I would say yes and no on the food in Russia, but the yes is kind of a, is kind of a shady cheating answer, and that's <laughs> and here's why. The hotel that my dad and I stayed at, and I, this is the funniest. That's not the funniest story of all time, but my dad and I to this day joke about it. And this happened over twelve years ago. One night we were just exhausted. We had done a full day tour. We're like, we're just going to do room service. The spaghetti bolognese at the Ritz Carlton in Moscow is the greatest spaghetti bolognese I've ever had in my life. So that doesn't, that's the, so that's, I'm okay. Apparently the Ritz Carlton in Moscow does a great job in terms of traditional <laughs> Russian food that we tried. It was, it wasn't as awful as I thought it would be. Okay. It was below average, but it was not horrible. Um, but no, my, like my, whenever my dad and I are at dinner and we see spaghetti bolognese on the menu, we just look at each other and we say, it can't be as good as the Ritz Carlton in Moscow. Shouldn't even try it. No, it's not even worth it. Uh, we're ruined on it. But the, uh, the yeah. Uh, Do they have a staple? I've never. Like aside from, I think of Russia, I think of caviar. And then I think of gruel because everyone's in jail. Yeah. I don't yeah. know like what their like barbecue would be. You know, or what their like chicken tacos would I don't be. even remember what that was like, to be honest. I just remember, what I do remember is not like being absolutely miserable eating. It was just like a. Like, it was like, okay, like, not so great, but, like, whatever. Um, Prague, surprisingly, has good food in the Czech Republic. Um, at least I enjoyed it. German food, also good. Um, obviously, Italy. About as good as it gets. Uh, I heard the wine over there, like, no tannins. 
in the wine or something yeah. so you can like drink it way more without drying out hangover type vibe right that's uh, and i have i actually didn't drink a ton of wine when i was in italy but like that's i do remember them saying that each time i was there and i don't think i had a hangover when i was in italy so that was all that's always positive especially because the second time i was there I was on my honeymoon um but yeah um I will say I've never been to Ireland. Uh, my sister has, my mother has, and they both said the food is just god awful. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, I, that's that's their opinion. I can't speak to it. D- didn't love. I didn't love French food, to be perfectly honest with you. But that's. Is it all butter based? Like what? It, yeah, it's, it's like super butter based, and I, I don't know. It's just it's a little too. I, I get it from like a fine dining perspective and it's, I don't know, but it's, it's definitely butter based and it's just like, it's a lot of neat, like cheeses and like, and don't get me wrong. I love cheese, but it's just, it's too, I don't know. Like up, it feels like uptight to me. Interesting. Coming from, uh, which, coming from uh, the Ritz Carlton. <laughs> hey, I would be so I'm scared to just walk into a Ritz Carlton, dude. I wouldn't even know how to act. <laughs> I didn't really know how to act. I just, we, we got our room keys, went up to the room and, then we were like we went to bed and uh started doing our t- doing tours the next few days like we when we were in moscow all we did basically was we had like three days like where we did three different tours like we had, we had a private tour guide which is amazing um and then but like it would be all day like we'd be we'd start at eight in the morning we wouldn't get done until like eight at night we'd like get grab a little snack in the middle of the day and we we'd get back and we'd just be wiped out so it's like we were in the room for about five. We were only in the room to sleep and eat spaghetti bolognese, I guess. But um, uh, yeah, just it's just Russia. Moscow was really cool. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, it was really cool. At least Mo- the at least Moscow. I haven't. Only, I've only been to Moscow, but um, I'd go back. Yeah. How old were you, and when did you go? I was 23 and I had just graduated college. Um, I'm 33 in a couple of months here. Um, So it was about 10 years ago. And uh, it was a trip my dad and I had been talking about. uh, We were going to do a trip kind of running around Europe after I graduated college. We had kind of been planning that trip for, I mean, since I graduated high school. Um, Kind of a funny story about that one. I, uh, I was interning for a company called IMG in their broadcasting division um, the summer before we were going to take this trip. They ended up offering me a job uh, at the end of that internship. And I said, okay, like, that's great. Like, uh, when do I start? And they're like, well, next week. I'm like, whoa, whoa, that's not going to work. I'm like, I'm supposed to take this six-week trip to Europe with my dad. And they're like, no, you you can't. Like, you have to start. And kind of like a fool, I said, all right, well, Thanks, but no thanks. Because <laughs> I mean, I'm fresh out, fresh out of college, no job, yeah. and I'm turning down like a really good job at the time. My dad was like, "Are you sure about this?" And I was like, "Dude, we've been talking about this trip for way too long." It ended up all working out, um, and I don't regret it for a second. That was a special trip. Yeah, that's a. I don't know if it's a uniquely American culture, but there's been all those international four day work week studies. Yeah, I've seen that. And, you know, like, I don't know if it exactly started industrial, like how we set, I've not read on how we settled on 40 hours versus what I think we are now in society, which is like task accomplish based. Like we value you to to get it done. Therefore, I will pay you when it is done kind of vibe. Right. Or even like, like whatever, like you're not quote unquote putting in 40 hours you need to get done with. 
Yeah, it just makes you milk the clock. That's the whole, like, I guess that's why that came about, is milking the clock. Lose you? Yeah, just for, it seems like it might be sporadic. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's not even like a 40-hour work week these days, it doesn't feel like. It feels like it's more of, um, I'm going to put in the amount of time to get done what I need to get done, and if that's 16 hours or 40 hours or 60 hours, I feel like that's kind of been a, we've trended into that sort of work dynamic. Yeah, you've and, disincentivized efficiency on an individual correct. level, which is very correct. weird to me. Um, yeah. But anyway, I but I'm curious about like, that mentality, I, I actually like the fact, and I wish I would have had more of this in my youth, is not loving, not thinking I had to work as much, but wanting to gain those experiences. And I guess not in like that slacker layabout way, but in right. a productive way, like worked my way around Europe. I was a waiter and a bartender. Like why the fuck right. didn't I take six months, get some visas and just hop around, man? How valuable and what would that have done to my life experiences now? I bet you I'd have known about the fucking Mongols. I'll tell you that much. Wouldn't have had to wait for, for a sure. For sure. Uh, and, and it's funny. I I kind of always lived a much more linear life in terms of school and work as well. Um, you know, I was go to school, you come home, and then you're on summer break or whatever, and you do some traveling, and but you don't really do some traveling. Like, and especially even like, I, I mean, I after I graduated college, I dove straight into a job with a company called Wheels Up. And it, actually, it's a private aviation company, so I got to do some traveling within the United States just as part of the gig. But I, I always did wonder, you know, what, what would it have been like to take like a year off or so and just go run around and, and learn uh, about different people, different cultures? Um, because I do think that there's a lot to be gained from doing that, um, just from developing a a much broader picture of the world other than what you see just here at home every day. Uh, I think there's actually genuine, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's a lot to that. Um, I think it adds a lot of value to someone's life. And I wonder if it would add more appreciation and contentness. I I would, if if you get it, I I would, I would bet it would get it in early, you know, like you don't have this FOMO, you don't have this, it could be better. I've always heard and something I've appreciated about European countries is like the life of leisure and simplicity. And like, they'll have three generations living in a home. And it's this vibe of like, the meal's gonna be an experience where I feel like a lot of times meals have to be gotten through to get more done. I don't know if that's just me, but it's like, we can't just sit around and shoot the shit for an hour and a half. We don't have time. We got to, we got to get to this. We got to get to that. And it's just like this fucking rush of like, maybe we could put the fork down in between bites and digest as we're eating. I can tell you a story that will perfectly illustrate what you're describing. On that trip I told you about, I went to Europe when I, right after I graduated high school, I went with a guy friend of mine and three of our girlfriends. And we, uh, we were, one of our stops was Stuttgart, Germany. And, Two of the friends I had with, I was with, had hosted German exchange students in the year prior, and so when we were in Stuttgart, we stayed at the house of one of these exchange students. They had a, had a, a very comfortable home, not large by any degree, but they had a basement, and they invite. And we were there for about four or five nights. They invited us to. They all let all of us sleep in their basement, no questions asked. A very nice basement, not like you're sitting in the cellar or something like that, and. Um, <laughs> But every morning, 
for breakfast and every night at dinner. Um, his entire family, the five of us, and their, his grandmother lived at the house as well. All sat down and we had dinner. And the, the mom and the grandmother cooked these incredible meals. And all of us sat down together for dinner every single night and every single morning for breakfast um, for the entire time we were there. And we it wasn't like the, you know, 30-minute dinner. It was we're sitting there for an hour and a half, you know, talking to each other, just learning more about each other. And, and that will always stick with me as a, and I think it's part partially a cultural thing. Uh, uh, but it just, it was, just, it was so special to have a dinner like that every night and every breakfast like that every morning where, you know, you're not, you're not shoveling food into your mouth, getting up and saying, can I be excused and going back and doing whatever else you wanted to do. It was like, you sit down and you enjoy these conversations and these, these people. Yeah. Yeah. Why are we terrible? about that like why did it, it yeah like we're um, terrible about a lot of things but <laughs> yeah I, I don't know man because it does sound peaceful but then i'm like well i could i guess try to create that but at the same time i'm also the guy where like i'll over schedule the fuck out of my kid i'm like yo when we get home man like i'm like me personally i'm like yo when i get home i have a routine i'm like i'm gonna take a nap power nap wake up jog cook dinner what you're going to do, you get like an hour of you time. And I name shit. And it's like hour on your phone. Then you're coming down. We're doing yeah. some math prep. If you don't have your sport to work out, go do a sport. Now we're going to do yep. thinking. And then it's like you're going to shower. And it's just like boom, 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 boom. Yep. And I don't know if that's typical for America. But I feel like if I'm not doing that to my kid, then I'm not like a good parent. And she's going to miss think out. I think there's something to be said for that kind of structure, especially a healthy structure like that versus, you know, the kid gets home from school and the, they spend the next six hours between the TV and playing video games and they come down for 20 minutes for dinner and then they go back up and get right back to it. Right. And uh, I mean, cause I think that's a good thing. Like, like my wife, I mean, my daughter's not even two yet. My wife does two, three activities with her weekly, like uh, at least. And, you know, she's always outside playing. She goes to my, uh, my in-laws house and she runs around their big, their big backyard. And just like, you know, I think, and my wife is definitely the more structured one of the two of us that goes without saying, um, I'm kind of all over the place, uh, ADHD for the win. But, um, <laughs> it's, I think having a structure like that, where it's like, Hey, you can have an hour, do what you want to do. And, but, you know, you know, like play a sport, do something outside, you know, move around. Uh, that's another thing too. I feel like, I mean, I remember when I was growing up, we were outside playing every day. Like, that's all we, that's what we did. We were shooting hoops in the front yard, riding bikes around the neighborhood, riding skateboards around the neighborhood. Like, we were outside every day. And uh, I, I just don't feel like you see that as much. And it kind of bums me out because that's, it was such a great way to grow up. Yeah, it, um, around here, it seems lack of, like, the, the community feel of just go explore. Like, could you imagine just showing up at someone's door, knocking on it, and being like, sup, man? Today, absolutely like, not. Like, you'd freak the fuck out. Like, you freak out when someone yeah. calls you. Imagine if yeah. you hear a knock oh, yeah. on the door. It's And it's only been like, so I'm 41. So it's 30 years ago, 15 years, 20 years ago, where I'm like, nah, man, it's Saturday morning, man. I'm just going to walk around and knock on eight of my boys' house. And we're just yes. going to walk around and get each other and then see yep. what the fuck we get into. Yes, exactly. We're going to skate. Yeah, get on, I'll get on my skateboard, longboard, 
bike, whatever, go to, go, and one of my best friends lived across the street. So it would be the two of us, like almost every day like, after school, we'd, we'd, you know, just go run around to some of our boys' house in the neighborhood and, you know, we'd go play soccer or we'd go throw a football around or we'd go, come, we'd have them come back to our, we lived in a cul-de-sac, which was awesome because we could, you know, didn't have to deal with too much traffic. We'd yeah. just play basketball all day. Like just, it was so organic. And so, um, you know, I think just positive overall for the childhood experience and growth and development because it teaches you how to be social, like normal social versus someone you meet playing a video game or whatever. And but there's not I'm not against video games by any means. Um, but it's like, it's things have definitely changed since, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Yeah. But I guess that dinner has me thinking like that me rolling around or people rolling around on a Saturday or after school, just figuring out what's, what's going on. That's a lot like those dinners where it's like, Hey man, yeah. I'm just going to figure out the dinner. And I, yeah. I don't know like why we've seemingly accepted the fact that like, it's a good thing that that's gone. But I have, I like I myself have, like I, I just, all I want to do now is make plans. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, the spontaneity of it's definitely gone a little bit. And I think to a slightly different point, different point, I feel like parenting has gotten a little bit lazier in a lot of ways where it's just like, it's so easy. Like you don't want to have your kid bug you all the time. Here, here's an iPad, go nuts. Or like, so for instance, my parents, when I was growing up, this is in my opinion, the best, best thing my parents ever did. Um, when I was young, probably five or six, eh, maybe a little older, but they told me you're never going to have a TV in your room. We're never allowing it, but we'll buy you any book you want. Mm -hmm. And I said, really? They said, Oh yeah, really? And to their credit, they held like, and, and I made them pay. They bought a lot of books. <laughs> I always liked reading, but like the, I, they bought a lot of books. And I thought, I think it's a good thing that they did that in the sense of they didn't want me like stuck isolating in my room, watching TV all the time. It was like, and like come downstairs and read your book on the couch with the rest of the family in the room. And just like, that way like where we're still spending time together as a family or something like and obviously i'd read in bed at night but like i didn't they didn't want me glued to a screen all day yeah and uh i think that was extremely um positive for just my growth you know look, looking at a screen yeah it's um i feel like with again going back it's just the universe wanting me to practice my editing skills <laughs> that's how i'm looking at it Lord, no, I knows I, Lord knows I need an editor. Maybe that's why I married my wife. But um, Last thing was just the, the reading of books and just being around the family. And then you kind of got cut off after that. Yeah, just uh, the, the, like, the reading of the books. Like I, I was always hungry for knowledge. Um, I was so curious. Like For instance, when I was 12 or so, for Christmas one year, I asked my parents for the entire set of the adult volume Encyclopedia Britannica. And my mom nice. looks at me like, you sure that's what you want? And I was like, yeah. And to this day, my dad jokes, I didn't come out of my room for like three weeks because I would I read the whole thing cover to cover. But I always, I just always had a thirst for learning about things. And I still do. Um, and I do believe a large part of that is um, due to their um, insistence and willingness to put books in my hand. Um, and I'm very grateful for that. And maybe even encourage boredom. Like that's that's my yeah. biggest fear is um, like my, my daughter will be like live in the country. So basically you have to go somewhere to 
do something that's not on your property, you know, and right. whatever you got trampoline, but she's an only kid. So she's by herself. And it's like, it, I understand it. But at the same time, I look at everything she has between the arts, between crafts, between even games, books, backyard, trampoline. I start going down all these lists and I'm like, yeah. how are you bored? What? Yeah. What? Yeah. what are you talking about? But You have like, 97 different things to do. Like, but that's inspiration time. And we've just so taken away the boredom to let the mind drift with phones right. and stimulation. And like everyone freaked yeah. out with TV. But I, I remember somebody too, um, I forget what it was. A, a really good book was like basically when the printing, when the printing press came out, the first published book was about like a hatred towards witches or something. And it was like all of this weird stuff that we thought was going to like ruin the world. And then it yeah. was absolutely fine. And then radio comes out and everybody's like, oh my God, no one will do anything now because now you have radio. And then it was fine. And then TV comes out and it's a bunch of, st everything's fine. Game systems. Oh no, it's a, everything's fine. Like it helped us to evolve and better the world. So I'm I like, agree. is it an overreaction? Like, am I old manning this fear of phone with my kid? Or is it reasonable to be like, nah, dude, you should not have screens and stimulation in that way. Like go seek stimulation cognitively elsewhere. I think it's somewhere in the middle. Um, Cause I don't think you want, I mean, I would say if you wanted them to fall on either end of the spectrum, you would probably want them to fall on the end of, you know, going out and seeking a stimulation without the screens. Having said that, um, I don't think behind. it, what? You don't want them to fall behind like the learning. No, curve. exactly. 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 And, uh, so like, I think, you know, the books and the screens and things like that are always going to be positive, but as long as it's not too far on the end of the spectrum of isolation and, only being behind a screen all day. And I think that's where it gets a little dicey. Um, I think a healthy balance, I mean, with everything is kind of what we're shooting for. Um, that's just kind of where I'm at on that. And, you know, well, my daughter's out to be too. Like we'll throw a, a Mickey Mouse clubhouse show on TV for when she wants to, you know, needs to chill out a little bit after she's been running around. But yeah. I think there's a good healthy mix of both. Um, and that's that's really what I think, you know, at least as a, as a parent myself, like I would want to aim for with my kids growing up. Um, I would like them to have as, as much of a balance as possible. I'm curious about like parenting philosophies or like okay. maybe your evolution two years into being a parent. <laughs> Did you have some like hard nose and then all of a sudden you're like, you know what? Maybe I was wrong. That was stupid of me to think. Or have you been like completely correct? <laughs> I, I think uh, I, I certainly I, I certainly can't say I've been completely correct. I think my wife and I both would say that there would be things that we probably would have done differently. Um, like at first, my, like my, my for me, my whole first thing was I have one job, and my job is to keep this girl alive. Like I basically just like have one job to keep her alive. That was the first step, and then so for the first four months of my daughter's life, she slept in our in our bedroom in the bassinet. And my wife was super adamant about zero sound other than the sound machine. No, no, like no TV, which I understand that part's bright, but like, she wouldn't even like, let me read a book on my iPad on like the lowest brightness. And I'm just like, I kind like, I, you know, so I'm just, I lay here, like <laughs> look at the ceiling and she, and she's since acknowledged that like, I can get away, I can get away with reading the book on the iPad. 
But uh, in terms of parenting philosophies, I would say I just want my kid to know that she's loved and that we just want to encourage her to do whatever she wants, really. Like, you know, as long as it's safe. I think that's uh, the way I was parented in many ways was phenomenal. There are some ways that I, I wish my parents had been differently. They were overly strict um, in some ways, and it kind of threw me off mentally. Like I was wondering, I, I was second guessing myself quite a bit. And I just want, I want her to have as much of an understanding of, you know, you take care of your responsibilities and um, obviously she's two. We're not there yet, but, um, but, but she uh, also, also, I will say this. We got insanely lucky. My daughter had been like the easiest child, like of all time. Like she was sleeping through the month, sleeping through the night, four months old. Like, yeah, we got lucky and she's just easy. Um, So I, I just, I guess I want, when she grows up, I want her to be able to think for herself. That's what I want more than anything. Don't just listen to what someone tells you. I want you to think for yourself, be curious. Um, and just be good to people. That it, It's funny, man. Like I'm very similar on the spectrum of that. Like have some natural curiosities, be a good person. Don't like shit on people unintentionally, but don't take shit from people. Correct. You know, like it's another, like, yeah. Don't, don't be afraid to def- defend yourself. Yeah. Don't be the first <laughs> asshole. Don't intentionally be an asshole. But if someone's yeah. like a jerk to you, man, you can put them in their place. Like you're too good to let people take advantage of you. A hundred percent. I firmly believe that, especially at large companies, corporations, um, I like, first of all, I like bad idea meetings because I feel like <laughs> stuff always gets flushed out. But the other thing, like when you're, when you're, when a company or you're about to, let's just say you're about to, execute this new marketing campaign and you're having this final meeting where it's like all right like we're taught we're walking through this this uh, marketing campaign and uh, maybe there's something in there that someone missed that like might be construed as you know sexist or racist or whatever like i firmly believe there should there should be a guy in the room whose job is to be like hold on are we sure this is a good idea like think about how many marketing campaigns about to get pulled back costing millions and millions of dollars because they didn't realize that what they were putting out there was probably not politically correct there's a there's a great article i'll have to find out of some of the worst ever ones of those and they were by massive companies that they like had to quickly turn tail on but um like just have this guy give him the title chief of common sense and just that's the guy that just says hey are we sure on this because there might be this or this or this. It's almost like a risk analysis yeah, uh, right. officer. Um, but yeah, no, it's like that when you say it out loud type thing. Like so, it's the same concept. And the you know you're saying all these things, ideas, whatever final pr- final product out loud, and you just, you, you should have uh, one guy in the room that is like, are we sure? And there's a funny thing. I I don't know if this is completely true, but I read it somewhere about. Um, Israel after um, the Six Day War, they completely unexpected it. Um, their the invasion by their neighbors and obviously came to the same conclusion on something. It was the duty of the tenth man to disagree, um, and in that sense, that tenth man would have to 
would go would move forward under the assumption that the other nine are wrong and start digging, um, which I thought was a really brilliant um, kind of concept because it almost it forces you to, you know, look at possible alternatives or look at the, and it goes to the point of like if nine people jump off a bridge and you're the tenth guy, do you still want to jump off that bridge? Yeah, that's yeah, the group think, right? The hive mind, the Correct. fear of disagreeing. And that's something I've not seen. So I'm a school teacher and um, a reading specialist. And so now as a reading specialist, I, I have like a dual role of I support teachers by trying to be in the classroom, almost like a co-teacher. Right. But then I go to meetings almost like a snitch. And I'm not right. like going out to like get teachers. But what I'm trying right. to do is like I'm the boots on the field that reports back to headquarters, almost like a like a, like a staff sergeant, right? Like a squad yep. leader or like a lieutenant would be around the platoon and then you report up. Mm-hmm. What I've been shocked by, and it's a government, like it's teaching jobs, curriculum people and um, district specialists, like how fearful they are to just like untrusting of ideas and fearful of um losing plausible deniability i take it yep and i don't know how successful companies actually do embrace like true thought debate and true like let's like it's cool sean just be an asshole we're actually going to embrace the fact that you're a pessimistic asshole because we value your perspective because it makes us make sure our idea is asshole proof and that's i don't know I don't know if that's just exclusive to the school I'm in or, and I don't know if that's something maybe you've been a part of cultivating or those think tanks. I really like the bad idea meeting thing. I might want to know. Yeah. I'm a big fan of bad idea meetings. Just basically like get together in a room, start shooting the shit and throw out ideas for whatever you're trying to accomplish and, or bad idea meetings, half-baked idea meetings, like that's what, however you want to call it. And, uh, because from there you can at least start to flush things out. Um, and you end up maybe incorporating a couple different pieces of the different things people said and you, you, and you know, you end up with a fully baked idea eventually. Um, so do you like but, send out whatever, like in a day, Hey guys, Tuesday, nine o'clock, we got a half-baked idea meeting about best practices to sell four color click pens so we uh so i was a a partner in a company that unfortunately um failed it was the three there were three of us involved um uh there was our founder who was actually kind of a friend of mine and then we had a partner in argentina and then myself and it was we you know are you familiar with butcher box yeah so it was basically butcher box, but for Argentinian beef, um, and Argentinian beef, in my opinion, is the best on the planet. Um, and there was, there was a very politically layered, uh, ban on the import of Argentinian beef into the United States up until a few years ago. And so we had the resources down in Argentina to get it done. And, uh, for the first couple of years, everything went great. And, um, it turned out to, the, the CEO of this company, I, I was the largest investor um, and turned out he was funding his lifestyle with my, my money basically. And so the whole thing went under, but uh, what we did when we, when things were going well, and it was my idea was we, we had a standing Monday meeting every, every Monday at 10 AM 
Pacific, we would hop on a Zoom call and just not even just shoot the shit, but just what's going on? What do we what do we need to do better? And it wasn't it was super informal. Just like let's let's see like what we can do to, you know, get creative here. And then and ninety percent of the things that we were said were like, no, that's terrible. And but but like so, but out of that might be born a new idea. All you need is one. And, all you need is one and then you can kind of flush that out and then you flush out the next one and then then you get a half-baked idea and then from there you can really kind of grow it and evolve it and that's what i think one of the biggest things that was making us successful at the beginning is we would we were dedicated to this every every monday morning call and as things kind of got a little shady with it we kind of got away from it but anyway um yeah i if i was to be if i was to run a company i would be the first person to say you know we're doing a Monday morning, Tuesday morning, whatever it is, you know, get, we're all going to get in the room if we can, or, you know, dial in whatever, the, whatever it is. And we're just going to talk things out and see if we can come up with some stuff. Cause there's always something that a growing business is trying to, to um, further advance or to innovate with. And I mean, I really do. And that's another thing about having good people around you. Um, the best companies in my experience, have usually the best people running them. And so when you have that and you can kind of work together to flush things out and, you know, be not necessarily be creative, but just, you know, the first time Alexander Graham Bell tried to create a telephone, do you think he got it? He definitely didn't get it right the first time. And he probably started talking to a couple people about it and he started getting some ideas and he started, that would be my guess anyway. Um, anyway, like, I doubt the first time he tried it, he succeeded. Yeah. But how do you keep uh, those kind of meetings productive? Do you know, like, I guess, and like, keep them short, keep them short. That's how no more than an hour. Um, And you just, we talk about like some of the recent initiatives um, and what we're looking to do and just start, we kind of just open it up. That's just uh, the way I like to do it. Um, just, and that goes back to what I was saying about the people that you have around you. You know, you got to have, you, you don't want to have, you know, people that are just going to start talking about, you know, the football game the night before or whatever. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, I'm sure there's a few minutes of that, whatever. Like, But I think as long as you have enough people, not enough, as long as the people that you have in the room are on the same page and trying to achieve the same goal, I mean, you're going to get more out of it than you don't. And again, that's why it doesn't need to be a, a long thing. It just, you know, take an hour and kind of throw some stuff out there. Do you have a technique or advice about like not offending? Or is it just like one of those, like leave your feelings at the door as you would your shoes? Uh, I, my you know, opinion on that is probably controversial. Um, I think if you're afraid to be offended about speaking your idea, um, you're not adding value it's the whole is the whole point is to throw even if it's the dumbest idea anyone's ever had okay say it we're not i'm not going to think differently of you for it um i think you you know you don't berate the person for saying it you kind of you know maybe laugh and then call it like you move on it's like hey like you know obviously and that's the whole point about i think culture within a company is you know you got to know that these guys are all on your side guys and girls um you know we're all trying to achieve the same goal um, you know, and by the way, I'll be the first to say that <laughs> not every idea I've had has been perfect. That's right. for dang sure. 
And uh, so, you know, I, I don't, if you're offended by, you know, someone shooting your idea down, I think that's more of a red flag than anything else. That maybe you're not ready to be in a half-baked idea meeting. Right. Uh, or like, this is the whole point of them. And that's, I think that would be something that would need to be inherently known by, among the people in the room. It's like, look, we're not here to like, you know, and you can bust each other's balls a little bit, you know, but it's not, it's nothing negative, nothing like you're not trying to put a person down. Yeah. It goes back to being a good human. And and I think uh, the best companies have the best leaders where they're, you know, they make, they build their people up. Even if they do say something dumb in a bad idea meeting, who cares? Because that, that same guy is probably going to come up with an idea down the road that's going to be something that makes the company a lot of money, you know? Yeah. Shoot or shoot, man. Hey, shoot or shoot. shoot. Next one's in, dude. That one, that yeah. one you missed. Next one's in. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I'm, and I'm not looking to gossip or anything about like negative ideas, but I am super curious or negative experiences. But like, for instance, butcher box for Argentinian beef and developing, yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> developing the relationships and the trust to be willing to take on that much risk. I'm super curious about, and it, it, like maybe you in particular, is it a thought process of, I've got to know you? Is there a vetting process? Do you bounce ideas off of like dad or mom? Hey man, I've got this opportunity. I just get so, real curious as a public worker great, who's never tried question. to create anything. Like how do great you question. take calculated risk? Um, so the guy that started the company was a, a friend of mine. Um, and I had seen what he did with a previous company of his um, where he basically created a little market niche for himself where he would, he would put together, he would basically be the travel agent and put together these trips for sororities and fraternities at colleges around, you know, the U S to go to Vegas. And he developed all these relationships in Vegas and, you know, he, he made, great money doing it. And I, I was, I actually went and helped him out just as a friend on some of these trips also didn't hate getting, getting to go to Vegas, I'm but say <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I saw him and he was just a, a killer. Like he, um, he knew everyone. He was, a, he got everything. He just, he was one of those guys that just hustled and got stuff done. Um, I found out down way down the road that he could have, he kind of was a little lazy with it in the sense of he could have done more trips if he wanted to and just kind of like didn't, he wanted to make like a certain amount and just kind of call it the day, gotcha. whatever. So, but the relationship I had with him was, was solid. And what I had seen from him um, was that he was a hustler. So that was, I felt good about that. Um, I needed to know about the business plan, of course. Um, and, you know, kind of what he saw the path forward looking like. And then our partner in Argentina, um, I had never met in person at the time. We did we spent hours on the phone, and I came to really respect the guy. And to this day, I still do uh, very much. Um, he also got screwed in this deal, but whatever. Um, but he he had the relationships with multiple farms in Argentina. Like we had, like our like our infrastructure was solid, um, other than apparently the finances. Um, <laughs> Kind of a kind of a big piece, but the the model was solid. Our distribution, like our distribution, was solid, um, and the product. Uh, to this day, I still believe the product's a little. You froze a little bit, and I'm just filling in dead air. I don't know if you can still hear me, but the product of Argentinian beef. I don't know if I've had Argentinian um, and yeah, beef. 
I'm sorry. sorry. I was no, dude. I just when you froze, I was like, maybe I can fill in time with a thought, yeah. and you can come yeah, back. Yeah, no. But I was just talking about Argentinian beef being the product, a solid product, which is the last thing I heard. And like, I recently upgraded my life to like grass fed steaks, and I don't know if they're near the quality of Argentinian, but. You, Argentinian, we were grass fed, grass finished. You notice a fucking difference in that yes. meat, man. I like that was when I felt like an adult. When I was like, yep. wait, I can pay nineteen dollars a pound for stuff, like, and oh my god, I enjoy this so much more. Ours were yeah, ours were grass fed, grass finished, and it was and it was that's basically what it was. It'd be like nineteen bucks for a steak, and and we would you know you could customize your own box and with whatever you want. Um, very affordable pricing. Um, and yeah, that grass fed, grass finished quality beef was, uh, it's regrettable, <laughs> but it, it, the way things turned out, but anyway, it, the product was phenomenal. And, uh, you know, one of those things you live and you learn, um, I had spoken, my dad, um, my dad, his background is in investing. He, uh, ran tcw i'm sorry trans america's uh, employee pension and uh, retirement funds for a long time he's one of the only guys to uh, i think maybe the only guy to beat the s p 500 11 years in a row um and then he moved over to a company called trust company of the west where he took over their select equities fund and when he started with them in 1998 the fund was worth two billion dollars and when he left five years later to retire it was worth 32 billion um so he uh he did a he did a good job <laughs> but he's uh so when I, of course when i'm looking at making an investment off the, well not always but back you know it was something like this a private investment into a new company um he's always a sounding board for me and i'm grateful uh, that i have him and have learned a ton from him i mean what i'm doing right now and <laughs> Uh, the meantime, before I kind of decide what I want to do next, is uh, just managing some small private investments, and I, I'm grateful that I have someone as you know wise as my dad to go to for um, this sort of expertise. And uh, so, yeah, he was definitely and still is a big sounding board for me when it comes to investing. I tried reading what's David Graham's book that apparently inspired Warren Buffett. I am not familiar with it. Gotcha. So it's a thick ass, like it would be a whole college course. And I get the concepts, but I get lost in the business vocabulary. Like when they start right. talking about whatever different aspects of a spreadsheet, I can't, I, I, I don't I have nothing to attach it to. So I'm super curious. Are there like certain things that you'll, that make you more comfortable investing when you see them? Yeah. Um, one thing is it's it's exceedingly simple and it's if a company has a cost advantage if they can make their make the best product for a cheaper price than their competitors makes sense that's gonna that's a big indicator um, <laughs> so it, it just is. i mean especially with amazon amazon's a perfect example i mean just the direct distribution model of it um back in the day another one was uh in the 90s this is one that i learned about from my dad um Dell computer, like back in the day, like when computers were started, really starting to come out and be popular, um, most computers were sold through a, a mid-market reseller, and so it cuts into the profit margin, whereas a, whereas Dell computers came along and they just sold directly to the customer, and so they're getting massive amounts of profit margin that 
the other companies weren't getting. And they kind of left people in the dust in that regard. Um, those would be a couple examples. Um, and the other thing is management. Um, you know, the companies that have, I, I mentioned it earlier, but I firmly believe that the companies with the best people making the this most important decisions um, are going to most likely succeed in the long run. Um, and for me, investing is not a short-term thing. I don't invest, I don't trade. I don't like try to, you know, buy at the dip and see if I can double up in two days and call it a day. Like it's not my style to me. That's more gambling. Yeah. Um, my invest, my investment approach is, um, is all strictly long-term, um, and trying to develop. I mean, my dad already kind of developed generational wealth, but I, <laughs> I like to do things on my own and I'm grateful for everything that he's, you know, provided me. But I mean, I still work and do my own thing. Um, but I want to be able to do that for my family and, but also teach my children that it, things are earned, not given. Um, so that's kind of my approach there. And, and that's why the approach of the, my investment approach I would consider is just, it's a long-term wealth, uh, wealth creation. What do you look for in managers? Like, because that's uh, part of the book. We're doing this book study for whatever district office, and it was talking about hiring practices for teachers. And it was basically a coin flip whether a teacher would stay three years or not. Right. And it's like, why do we suck at judging people's character and their value to a job position? It's like worse right. than the, and they they um account or uh compared it to the NFL draft where it's like uh, even less than 50% have like second contracts as first round picks. And it's like, that's a billion dollar business that is going to invest millions into an individual and the NFL can't figure it out. So why are we expecting district office people making 200 grand to figure it out? So I'm curious. So you cut out for about 15 seconds. I was just saying, you know, I was was uh, NFL. You know, like they, yeah. they invest all that money and they can't even get it right. A billion dollar Correct. corporation giving millions to this dude. And like, you can't know if he's going to actually play well for you. Right. You're With drafting Ryan, Ryan Leaf second overall, or, you know, like stuff like that, where it's Jamarcus Russell. Uh, like, <laughs> uh, you want to hear it. You want to hear a great Jamarcus Russell story? Cause this is one of my favorite NFL stories of all time. Yes. Jamarcus Russell, the summer uh, going into like his, I think it was his rookie year. It might have been his second year. I don't remember which, but he was with the Raiders. And he, um, his coaches didn't think he was watching the tape that they were sending home with him. And so they they kind of just were like, we're going to test this. So they sent him home one night with blank tapes. And then the next morning he came in and they were like, hey, Jamarcus, like, what would you... Uh, what did you think about those tapes last night? What did you see on those tapes? He goes, oh, I really love seeing those blitz packages, coach. Learning how to pick up those blitz packages. And they're, the guys in the room just look around like, clearly he's not watching the tapes since we sent him home with yeah. blank tapes. Like, <laughs> Right. And then, you know, just the, the lack of work ethic there. But anyway, to, your, to the original question, um, in managers, I would say, I, again, I try to keep things as simple as possible. Um, and... To that end, I like seeing a long-term track record of success. Obviously, it's a very basic thing to say, but um, you want to know that they've been doing it for a while. And, if, and I'm, that doesn't mean I won't get into something with someone who's a little bit newer on the block, but I like a slightly more conservative approach at 
in some de- in some degree, but I also believe in a manager who will bet big on the ones that he believes the most in. And that, it, honestly, for me, that comes from my dad. A lot of mutual fund managers will hold 80 to 90 stocks in their portfolio. And my dad always only held about 30 to 35. So it was, he, was, he was very contrarian in that sense, but he would bet heavy on the ones that he felt the best about. And I, I really, but he also wasn't, you know, just walking into it saying, I want 25% of the portfolio in this stock right off the bat. You know, he would, ha- he would have his approach and he would come to his conclusion and he would bet on him. And I say betting like this is all gambling. It's not obviously. Um, but it was, you know, a conservative approach in terms of how much and when you put money into a certain, a certain asset, as well as, um, just, I want a manager that's not afraid of going heavy on stocks he believes in. Um, I don't love a tentative approach, but I do believe in a conservative approach. Oh, so I got, I got lost there then. So when I'm talking about managers, I'm talking about people making decisions within a company. Are you talking about people managing a portfolio? Yes, that's yes. Okay. Uh, okay. Got you, got you, got you. See, I didn't even know that was like a hierarchy like that. So when you have, but that makes sense. When you have an investment firm, you've got people there because that's interesting too. You've got people there basically researching and having to pick what companies to yeah. put the money into. And do you, right. so do you divide those people into like sectors? Like you're the tech manager, you're the automobile industry manager, you're the banking manager. I would, I, I would say you kind of you have your analysts focusing on different. Um, sectors for sure um i think it's you know you don't want anyone getting stretched too thin um and especially if guys have backgrounds in certain you know certain sectors you want you want to put them in a, the best position to succeed and put them in front of the things that they're going to know the know the the best um to answer your question about managers within companies i actually have a pretty strong belief in that the best managers empower their people and don't overmanage. Um, I think that's where you run into a lot of trouble because you're going to have your, the people under you, um, kind of t- keeping their head on a swivel at all times, like, like worried about like, what if I mess up? What if I mess up? Like what's going to happen? Like, I don't, I don't, I think overmanaging is one of the worst mistakes a manager can make. Um, I think you make And part of that is in terms of the hiring of people, you need to do your research. You need to know who you're hiring. And if you trust yourself on that hire, bring them in. And once you bring them in, you know, give them parameters, so to speak, yeah. but, do, but, but let them do what they do. It's funny. One of the first guys I worked for, um, uh, he was my, I worked at a company called wheels up for nine years, a uh, private aviation firm. And the, uh, I, I, the company was brand new. I was one of the founding employees when I was fresh out of college and, I worked with a senior partner out on our West coast. It was just the two of us on the entire West coast. And he's a, he was a hard driver, man. He, uh, he worked for Jordan Belfort at Stratton Oakmont. He's a hardcore wall street boiler room guy. And to the point where he, he demanded excellence, but he always told me, this is what I firmly believe. He always said like, dude, I want you to be better than I am. Like, he's like, I, I want you to be better than I am. And I think that's a good mentality to have as a manager. You want the people that you, that are working under you, you want to, you should want to 
help them succeed as much as possible because it's only going to make you better. It's only going to make them better. And it's going to promote a, a system of like we, uh, for lack of a better word, meritocracy, but also if you trust your people to do what, you know, they're good at more often than not, I genuinely believe that they're going to outproduce your best expectations. I feel, I wonder how many managers and again, like these are managing people, not portfolios, right? Right. Are not, maybe it's just my experience, lack the confidence to be incompetent or to have someone be more competent than them. And I feel I like- I think that's a big piece of it. Right, like it has to take a real secure individual to be like, um, why don't we let this person speak because they're better at numbers than I am. I don't get numbers, that's your thing. But yet I'm in charge of you, so how can I appear dumber than you or less competent or capable than you? You know, it's well, on the flip, the flip side of that coin is not the flip flip side, but probably a corollary to that point is the manager that wants to take credit for the the underlings kind of uh, oh, success, that's and which up. which you see a lot, which you see often. Um, and like like you said, like you don't this, this this kid under me doesn't know numbers. I'm managing him, and I have to. Pre- and we're supposed to be presenting. Where did where did you lose me? Every time you make a good point. The universe is against us. <laughs> manager, no, it's, manager with it's, a kid. Yeah. So if you're the manager in the in the meeting, you have to give a presentation, and uh, you know you're not great about this numbers side of things. Um, instead of letting the kid do that presenting, you you kind of essentially make him give you like a little talk track so you can make yourself look better versus. The confident manager says, "Hey, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna pass this question off to to J- to James over here because James can because ex- it can explain it. Um, I think in a much more succinct and uh, better way. And by the way, I, they don't, in my opinion, they don't realize that by doing that, you're actually making yourself look better in two different ways. One, you're showing that you brought this kid. This is the kid that you manage, and he's putting out a phenomenal presentation that looks good on you." And you're humbling yourself to the point where you don't need to have that um, recognition. You don't need to have, like, it's not about that. It should, be, it should be about, you know, the most efficient, effective way of doing things. And I think the best leaders, the people above the managers, will see that. They will see that the manager is willing to say, hey, this, this kid is, is a whiz when it comes to this. Like, I, like I, I want to have him present it. And, and that's something that I would notice um, because I always, I always notice the guys that are, I mean, for lack of a better way of putting it low week or, uh, you know, uh, low self-esteem, but like come off like as they, they try to present as high self-esteem and like they need to have the credit. Um, and, and, and it shouldn't be about credit always. It should be about presenting the best product and especially, you know, who cares if this guy works under you? you still look good by him presenting it, in my opinion. Yeah, but I, I don't know. It also, to me, it's a little bit maybe of a nihilistic attitude. But if you believe in meritocracy and whatever, guy's better with numbers than you, then guy becomes your boss. Worst case, he really values you as a manager now, right? Because you helped him rise ranks or the person rise ranks. And it's like, What's the worst if you took credit and were unable to perform the duties that you presented? 
you're not going to stay in the job that you just got promoted up to if you're worried about it anyway. You're incompetent in that field. So like yep. it's it, it's a lose to me that mentality of like idea credit taking is always and, such a lose lose. And by the way, and by the way, if you do if you do that credit taking, the kid that is better or at what this particular topic is, he's not going to want to work hard for you anymore. Like yeah. he's going to be like this guy just this guy just basically uh, poached it, took, stole it, posted, non-citation. <laughs> and that to me is never, it's never going to encourage people to, to work, work their hardest for it. I mean, and number, I believe the number one job of a manager is to get the maximum out of the people that are under them. And why the heck would I want to work for a guy that just poaches deals, poaches like meetings, like when, when really I'm the one doing all the work or not even doing all the work, but I'm the one that's, you know, like, how about let's work as a team here? Like you can get you, like you give one piece of the presentation as the manager and like, Hey, like this is like a different part of it. So like, I, let's, I'm going to pass it over to him because he can yeah. handle it much better. Yeah. It would kill the whole vibe of the half baked idea meeting thing. Cause why do I even oh. want to share out? You know, if I know all you're going to do is take my stuff and then I seem incompetent in places or all I am. I'm not, is, I'm not, I'm not saying a word in the half baked idea yeah. meeting. If, if, if that's how I feel. Yeah, no doubt. I'm no, a, the, the, go ahead. No, no, I'm just curious um, about positives. Have you like hit on anything that you can talk about? Not to be braggadocious, but like a business you invested in or something that like a, a feel good story that worked out really, really well in your favor? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. Um, so the, I mentioned it a moment ago, I started with a company called the wheels up, a brand new private aviation company. We were nothing more than a PowerPoint really when I started with them and we uh, had about 25 employees and we, our goal was to be a national private aviation company. Uh, we started out with uh, an order with Beechcraft for 105 King Air 350Is, the twin engine turboprops. And um, the goal was to democratize private aviation. Um, and we were coming, I mean, we're stepping into an industry with, you know, Warren Buffett back net, net jets and, you know, directional aviation huge conglomerate of private aviation companies but we believed in our model and over time i was i was lucky as a first uh one of the first employees i received stock in the company and my partner and i on the west coast just grinded we were selling we didn't even get planes out on the west coast for four months and we were still selling memberships and people putting money on account because uh, the, the the model of wheels up is very simple it's you purchase a membership 17,500 and then you pay as you fly. You know, a lot of the companies in the closed fleet uh, private aviation space, you have to put down a like a six-figure plus deposit up front to get access to these planes. And so we were just like, well, you pay a membership and then you can just pay per flight. Um, so we were able to grow a business really well that way. Um, and over the next eight, nine years. Every time you get flowing, man. I were, uh, we went through capital raise after capital raise for many years. Um, and I worked directly under our chief strategy officer. So I was involved in a lot of these investor meetings and financial institution, institutional investor meetings. So I got to learn a lot about how a business grew. And uh, fast forward to 2021, Wheels Up became a publicly traded company. So I got to be involved in a company that started out, you know, 25 employees in a PowerPoint to publicly traded on the New York stock exchange. And I was, you know, uh, heavily involved in a lot of the things that 
made that company grow um, and really proud of that and what we what we did. Uh, stock price isn't doing so great right now, but it's uh, it's been a weird it's been a weird couple of years in private aviation. Because uh, one thing I noticed about I was the only one that noticed it. A lot of people did. Uh, once the COVID pandemic hit, the people that were probably qualified to fly privately uh, in terms of wealth um, that were that were still flying commercial, they would start flying privately because it was easier. And once okay. once they started flying privately, they were never going to go back. Okay. Um, so it was just it, it was it was really fun to be part of a rocket ship of a company to go from you know zero to publicly traded um that's that was that was a big win and then i don't know man no dude that was great and i'm probably gonna ask a lot of stupid questions because i'm way over my steez so covid helped boost the stock prices did i understand that right or that's what hurt it more people flying private because now you've got more competition so we weren't pri- we weren't COVID. We didn't go private, and I'm sorry, the company didn't go public until mm, mid late 2021. So COVID had already been in full swing before the company went uh, public. Um, but the demand for private aviation uh, skyrocketed and during it COVID. Allowed you to, or it helped in part for you to go public because you had gained all this money. Correct, and money, but mostly just new clients, and it, 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 you know. It allowed us to realize that you know we were in a position to gain just so much more market share, and um, it, you know there's a lot there are a lot of big players in the space, and I think a lot of them actually I know a lot of them have suffered some just unable supply issues. Just I mean there are a finite number of usable private planes, and you know so many people wanting to fly privately, you're going to have a little bit of an issue with all the demand, but. And I think that's one of the, I think that's the biggest thing that has hurt uh, the stock since we did the company did go public, just not a, an inability to meet demand. Although we acquired, we, I say we, I don't work there anymore, but uh, <laughs> uh, the company acquired multiple other small privatization um, companies to get access to those planes. And um, this, in terms of stock price going down, I would say it's mostly due to uh, you know the service has not been as good as it should have been um, for a little while in terms of being able to just meet the demand. And that's something I think that you're seeing a lot in, in the private aviation industry, um, at least over the last year and a half, two years. Um, uh, like for, for instance, NetJets was not even accepting new memberships, not memberships, new clients for a certain amount of time because they couldn't, even they couldn't handle the demand. They have the largest fleet of private planes in the, in the United States. Um, so that was, that's been a big issue. Um, the industry itself, I believe is healthy, um, and will continue to grow. And I I do believe the stock price will rise eventually. I think it might be a little bit of a long, slow road to kind of get things streamlined to where they need to be. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a pretty awesome success story just to, you know, have been involved with this company from the beginning and you know at such a do you hate me such a young age i know i i don't know if the universe is against you or me my friend with the internet i don't know either um probably me that's that's what we all say for ourselves when we secretly feel it's the other person right (laughs) (laughs) it's probably me no it's really you 
It's that Delaware internet. Dude, it's, it's this country internet for sure. I'm a, so I was buying tickets to for the Lake Tahoe trip, and I noticed on Google Flights, they had like this CO2 admission like tracker. Like if I'm on this plane, I admit like 600 or 700 CO2, my CO2 score or something. I know nothing about that okay. whatsoever. I, I don't know if I'd be able to. I could probably pull up on my phone. I'm scared to like fuck with the computer with it. But no, I'm no, cur- no, it's fine. But I'm curious. I'll look it up at I'm curious about like, yeah, your industry and like, was that ever, you don't want to call it like woke culture or global warming culture, but the whole like conscientiousness of environmental impact, like did that get caked into a business model? Was that like considered at all? Or is that like media hype overblown? People going to travel, they're going to travel, not worried about a carbon footprint type thing. So I will say, or like when we were getting the company going and we placed that order for 105 King Air 350i turboprops, the tur- those planes, those, those Beechcraft planes um, actually do have a slightly lower carbon footprint than, than jets because they're turbo. Yes, they use jet engines, but they're not putting out as much um, carbon emissions. I don't really think it was necessarily part of like the, oh, this is going to be, we're going to make ourselves the green private aviation company or anything like that. Um, but to your other point, it's like, people are still going to fly a lot, um, no matter what. And, you know, I mean, you could make the argument that a lot of, a lot of carbon, a lot of the carbon footprint is going to be increased on with only eight people on one large, like mid-sized plane versus like, you know, if you get 200 on a, on a bigger jet, like maybe like the per person output. I I don't really know, to be honest with you. I just, it wasn't really something we thought about, to be honest. Got you. I, um, whatever. I just go to Google flights and it's operated by Piedmont airlines as American Eagle plus 25% admissions. And then like, I can get another flight that's average emissions, um, by Piedmont airlines as American Eagle, but it's at a different time. So like, oh, I, mean, I don't even know what that means. Like, what, what, I, like, I don't know what plus 28. So like, this is where I'm like, I see an entire department calculating this and I'm like, what a waste of resources. Cause number one, I don't know if it actually matters to like who's purchasing a flight. Why am I going to pay? Yeah. Do I buy this flight? That's $6 cheaper, which is nice that it's cheaper for the fact that it's 13% less admissions. Yeah. Personally, I would never take that into consideration yeah I'm, and like meanwhile like we're posting that on flight like on flight information and we're not even talking about what went on in east palestine ohio like that makes plenty of sense it um i was shocked by it so that's why i was super curious because that, that's what the people get mocked you know like um i don't know if she's a client um but like whatever aoc or pelosi or like these like you know pure green lives the stereotypical and then all of a sudden it's like oh you came here on a private jet but you want me to have an electric car cool it's man. the same as it always is the uh, rules for me rules for thee not for me that's what it is that's it's cool. like they don't want you to have guns but they walk around with body car bodyguards with guns like yeah I, it's it's the whole the whole woke culture thing is like the whole, i mean i know we don't have a ton of time left but i mean it, <laughs> Politics is something that I am very much curious about and probably deep dive a little bit too much, but um, 
I mean, I was a political science major, so I kind of keep my foot on the or my my uh, my eye on what's going on. But it's a weird weird world we live in these days. Yeah. Um. And so, did you get into the crypto thing, the bank thing? Do you like enjoy speaking about that? Does that have any impact in your life? The are you talking about? Uh, so FTX. There, so the FTX was whatever, like six weeks ago. And then the, was it Silicon, Silicon Valley? Valley? Yeah. I don't, I don't know enough specifically about the Silicon Valley bank situation to speak much on that. Um, I know a decent amount about the FTX stuff and from what I know, it's extremely shady. Um, all of the extremely crypto. So I had a couple people come on and like talk to me about it. And when they'd explain it, I'd be like, so it's an unregulated bank that I just trust will keep value. And then like, well, if it's untraceable, how do I trust you to like give it back to me? Right. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I can never get past that. Yeah. I, uh, so I am lightly invested in crypto and I mean, very lightly. I mean, I'm, I'm in probably 70% Bitcoin, 20% Ethereum and then, sprinkled the board on a couple others that's about it i don't pay much attention to it um i think bitcoin i trust the most and believe in it because it's essentially truly decentralized um and i think that's what scares a lot of people and the other thing just about the ftx scandal is part of me wonders if the government's going to use the ftx scandal to kind of introduce more governmental oversight of crypto which I can, you know, I can see a little bit of that side of the argument, but I don't like it because um, at this point, I mean, I have such little trust in government as a whole, and that means both sides of the aisle. <laughs> that uh, uh, I mean, I, I I'm a traditional conservative. I vote Republican. I, I also am very uh, moderate on certain things, but uh, I mean, uh, how do you trust a politician these days? It not unless you're paying them to get like unless you're a exactly. lobbyist and unless you're exactly. financing their campaigns exactly like, it all. or they're paying you oh. in the case of ukraine for instance <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a whole different story i mean i could yeah uh, we probably don't need to go down this rabbit hole because i'll say something that's going to offend someone at some point yeah i i i guess yeah right so if we're going with getting to know you and shaping your beliefs yeah let, let's ask that why do you does it why does it bother you does it actually have an effect that these people are wasting a ton of money do you sit there and look at like your income and you're like fuck man i just gave you 30 percent of this for you to squander when i could give you 20 percent. like why does it not trigger you but trigger you what do you mean what do you mean by why does it bother me like what do, what do we mean by 400 it? billion to the ukraine right yeah like, that, that definitely triggers me um <laughs> in the sense well it's like i feel like there's a lot of things that we need to work on here at home um you know we could you know maybe work on the southern border a little bit or you know try to help the like the homelessness problem that we talked about there i mean provide more resources for mental health um that i, I think is severely lacking um but yeah, the fa and I'm not for higher taxes by any means, but I don't like the idea that my hard-earned American tax dollars are going to the Ukraine when, like, look, and I, I, there, I think Ukraine, there's, I have nothing against Ukraine. I have nothing for Russia. 
I think the whole thing is probably a little bit more shady than we think. Um, and I don't, I don't understand. Like, why are we sending money, military equipment to Ukraine? Like, are we like, why do we need feel the need to influence our military presence in Ukraine? And I mean, I pray it doesn't come to the point where we put, you know, us humans on the ground there. Um, but I think, I mean, just especially with some of the stuff with that we've that has come out uh, about, you know, why is why was Hunter Biden being paid by the board of the energy company in Ukraine? Like, what could that possibly be related to anything we're doing there? I, I don't know. I think a lot of political influence is bought, to say the least. And I don't see this. What I per, I perceive it to be an escalation um, militarily. Um, I mean, we were we were going to stop at you know ten billion, and we stop at forty billion, and then all of a sudden, you know, we're about to be at two hundred billion. Like, and that's my tax dollars. Like, why am I like why am I financing this? Yeah, like, dude, I'd so much rather give it to Exxon so that I could pay a dollar twenty for a gallon of gas. You think? <laughs> and why why did we halt drilling in the United States? Period. Like, why like why are we doing that? Because we're trying to be carbon like neutral carbon efficient or whatever it is by 2035 or like the world i mean it's just uh, look i'm not trying to kill the planet here by any means but i mean we need energy not to mention our food supply like inflation's rising um cost of goods and grocery stores is going up like crazy yeah it, um, it's really hard to eat if you if and i'm fortunate enough as a teacher with a graduate degree where i've not had to change my spending habits yeah. Um. But like, I, I'm I've lost discretionary income. Where yeah. I'm not. 100%. I'm not buying an extra T-shirt on a fucking whim or like looking at a boutique and being like, oh, let me support this small business or like having an extra whatever, like a, a going out to lunch. I'll be like, nah, dude, I'll pack a PBJ because I need dude. the twenty bucks to make it through my grocery shopping so that I can eat the way I want to to maintain a healthy lifestyle. And that's the fucked up thing where it starts, you get into like class warfare and it's if you're on a fixed or low income and now you're making some like... Amazing. Yeah. Something posted something amazing about, um, I got to find it. Bear with me. Um, it's basically like something along the lines that we've given $15 billion of money to Ukraine. We Oh, here we go. I did the math. At least 100,000 restaurants were closed in America due to lockdown restrictions. America sent 15 billion to Ukraine over the last few years. They could have given 150 grand to 100,000 U.S. restaurants to reopen. Yeah, but well, I don't know. It's so interesting that concept. But then you would say like, we're bailing out restaurants, right? Like, like the um, what were what were the COVID loans to small businesses? PPE. I'm not PPP. I think PPP. Uh, like all those got forgiven. Like I, I know several yeah. businesses, and you can track that shit online. Like, wait, so they borrowed three hundred seventy thousand dollars, and we're just like, oh, cool, you own a good business. Go ahead and keep that. We're like, what the fuck? Could you just send me a check for something more than six hundred bucks? Can, can yeah. I get more than eighteen yeah. hundred? Just because I don't yeah. own yeah. a business, I don't get to like cash that in. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And then, but I would rather. That, I would rather take that than sending it to the Ukraine, right? So like uh, I, I do, I, I yeah, because I start to get this very, I don't know if it's Ralph Nader, 
Who's the dude from Kentucky that's like very much an isolationist? Not Nader. He was an economist. Ron Paul. Yeah, Ron Paul, yeah. Yeah, where it's just like, leave the fucking world alone, man. Focus on us. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's kind of my my whole thing is like, we got stuff we can do better here. And by the way, a lot of these, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm mostly glad we haven't gotten into COVID on this episode because <laughs> I would, I mean, I could go all day, but uh, I mean... Some of these restaurants, I mean, it was a lot of the lockdown restrictions that forced them to close. Like, they didn't even have a choice. Yeah. And a lot of these restrictions, we it turned out to be completely draconian and unnecessary. And, you know, people lost livelihoods. But now we need to, now we need to send over 100, 200 billion to Ukraine to help them out. Like, I don't know. It feels like we could do a lot better by, by our citizens here. And, uh, um, yeah, but it's, so it is different choice makers though, right? Like federal funding versus town state regulations. I feel maybe that's the only difference is you've got a national sure. issue where they have limited capability. A, a, a senator, honestly, is very hard to get votes caring about one little small town where if you have this right. Ukraine stance that's your entire state or now i have political aspirations and that's national you yeah. know versus like okay you're in the state of california you have to wear a mask indoors in this place they try to leave that to local people it's so bad california i mean yeah i mean what do you hate the most let's go yeah what's your like worst, what did i hate the yeah most? your that worst not... covid story we might as well since we're talking about it one of the one of the one of the things I hated the most was the fact that children' uh, speech deficiencies um, were massively exacerbated by the fact that they had to wear masks, and you know, especially children that already had kind of a speech deficiency, like they were working with speech therapists and that sort of thing. I mean, because they're forced to wear masks, they they fell even further behind. Uh, that to me, I mean, and especially with the data we had fairly early on that you know children were pretty fine. safe they're fine from COVID, and they don't totally give it to fine. grandma and they don't give it to grandma correct but it was the teachers union and the teachers that were like no we need the masks in the schools and it's like i mean especially and i i mean i live in a neighborhood that has four elementary schools actually and just so we go on walks as much as we can and seeing kids playing outside with masks on and i'm just like in circles, yo. Like there there were fucking like recess sessions where you yes, had to stay yes. in your circle outside. And even stuff was going on like that like like a year ago. Yeah. Like it was like it, it's just crazy to me. And so a big part of it would be the children that I think especially the speech deficiency, the children Dude, and the children that didn't like the teenagers that lost like the bit like some of the best moments of their lives so far, like where they're stuck locked in. And I think a lot of there's going to be a lot of, uh, I think there are a lot of, uh, you know, newly created addiction issues, a lot of created, newly created mental health issues by people that were forced to stay inside, especially at that kind of, at that age where, you know, you're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, you're in college or you're in high school and, you know, all of a sudden you have to do Zoom learning. I think where our education levels dropped isn't if they weren't dropping enough already. Um, oh yeah, standardized scores show that. Oh, it's, yeah, everywhere. I mean, it's just, it's, it's horrible. And yeah, this again, is, this, the small business thing too, that bothers, that bothers me very much. Well, 
that the speech thing's interesting because it's like no one realizes how much people learn how to speak babies by looking at your lips. Correct. Like that's the focus. Correct. And like you're like ga 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 and like how much even facial expressions help convey emotion yep. and word acquisition. It was like yes. ah, we can put that on pause for two years. Yeah, it's a, it, I mean, if not longer, but no, it's just it's. And the other part, okay, you know, the part about the COVID thing I hate the most is probably uh, the vaccine lies. I mean, I'm not an anti-vaxxer by any means. Um, I do, but what I do believe is it's everyone's personal choice to get. That, that vaccine the irony of my body my choice with roe v wade versus like the same party being like you have to was such an interesting dynamic of we it, clearly it hilarious. Find a better middle ground man you know there has to be and it's like you know why is it my body my choice for this but not for that oh because it's in the greatest interest of public health well is it because now i mean just the more that comes out about these shots it doesn't seem to be necessarily positive information i mean you're seeing for uh, male fertility male sperm counts de- decrease um not not always but it's a they, they've shown correlation um women's menstrual cycles being messed up uh, not all of them obviously again but correlation um and uh, among other things i mean how many times how many how many athletes have we seen just fall down on the on the field like for no reason whatsoever like there was one i don't i don't know if you're a soccer fan but this guy named christian erickson he plays in europe in the it was in the euro cup i want to say two years ago and a year i don't know two years ago and it was one of the scariest things i've ever seen in my life the guy is like totally fine dribbling around and all of a sudden just goes falling forward on his face and the entire arena freaks out but ended up being okay but like you see the you just you see a lot more examples of or cases of myocarditis uh, heart inflammation um and on people who were fine because they worked out anyway i mean especially we're talking about like athletes at the peak of their profession like like it's just, I don't know. It's regurgitating talking points, but like it seemed it could be very clear very early that if you had no comorbidities, you were going to be okay, man. Like elderly, cool. Yeah, live. Yeah, for sure. If you've got got three or four comorbidities, like, okay, it might make sense. Um, But I I mean, I personally never got the shot. and it, for me, it was, I was never even fully against it. Like when it came out, I was actually one of the first people that was eligible to get it because I worked, I was working and invested in that meat company because it was a food industry. I was, a, I was one of the first eligible to, to get it. And I, and I was like, I'm just going to hold off. I, I just wanted to see more information and see kind of what came out. I was never fully against it. And uh, just the more I saw, the more I was just a little hesitant. And just and at this point, it's like, there's zero percent chance I would ever consider it. And the entire Um, fucking you talk about like a business and a marketing department like the entire thing every aspect of covid has had to have been walked back to such extreme it wasn't just like one mishap it was like 12 rebrandings oh yeah where it reminded me did you ever watch the wire on hbo oh yeah so oh, yeah. one when, of my favorite shows ever. So Stringer Bell goes to the community college and he's asking about like, what if you have a company with better product? And the yep. college professor's like, you just rebrand yours. And he's like, 
oh my god that's so simple and now he like renames his crack whatever and it like starts working <laughs> but it's so smart and yeah right it's just like hey man you know now it's okay that no okay so yeah maybe it spreads but you won't and then it was like why do we keep just accepting rebrandings why why did the goalposts keep getting moved why did the cdc change the definition of the word vaccine they actually did that uh, yeah, that was the story. weirdest thing, man. Because not to be like a Joe Rogan bro, but the way he gets professionals who have, like the I remember, I literally remember. I think it was an April episode when um in Delaware we got shut down in March sometime, uh-huh. and it was a guy who had mRNA patents. I want to say eleven or twelve. Doctor Robert uh, Malone, maybe. Sounds right. And he yeah. was like, here's who's going to die. Everyone who's obese in the South because it'll spread in warmer climates and they have comorbidities and this is not a vaccine. You are making adjustments to your DNA. You are telling your body to produce something. You are not giving your body something so it naturally develops antibodies. You are changing Correct. the structure of how your cells form and what Correct. they do. And like the dude said it and explained it and I'm like, makes to- like actually makes total sense yeah and I, it's funny i don't remember that episode specifically but i think rogan had him on again i want to say uh around i want to say it was around new year's 2021 going into 22 and it like broke the internet because this guy's basically saying these vaccines are probably going to fail etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh and again like, yeah co one of the co-inventors of mrna holds a bunch of patents on it uh, sounds like a guy that probably knows what he's talking about. Um, but he went against the established narrative and got vilified for it. Um, it's, I don't know, to me, it's, I mean, if you notice, they aren't even promoting shots anymore. Whereas literally a year ago, a year and four months ago, Biden goes on to, to address the nation to say for the unvaccinated, you're in it for a winter. I, that, that's on my Instagram. I posted that because I like, I, I, it just was one of the most insane things I'd ever heard. Like you're in for a, a winter of suffering and death for you and your loved ones. He's getting the shots on TV and you're like, number one, do we even trust that it's a shot? But then it's I was like, going to say, like, I was going to say, is he actually even getting yeah. the shot? Is that saline? Like, and then it's six months. It's good for a year. Now, like our latest, <laughs> The latest ad that I heard, um, and I can't believe they still, they must just be like draining their fiscal 2023 budget. Um, Cause they're like, eh, we'll just, whatever, we got 10 grand, let's go radio ads. They're like, you remember every couple of weeks. And it's like, who the fuck is still getting the vaccine like shot? Who no one, still- no one. I mean, I can't think of anyone. And by the way, Novak Djokovic can't, can't even come into the US to play in the US Open because he's a foreigner that's unvaccinated. That's still a thing. You can't come play. Wow. Yeah, it um it's insane. It'll be interesting having lived through it. Like I, I hope I get to like 80. And I hope I have grandkids who get taught about the COVID era at some point in school. And then if they release the data by then. <laughs> and then they get to like come to Grandpa Shawn's and he's like, let me tell you really what happened. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder. I wonder what the yeah. Uh, like the spin. It, it's funny, man. But like, it, it. I don't know if I'm in the Matrix, but it goes back to that Mongolian book about like just information and how the Mongols were geniuses. Do you know that was the other thing? Part of why they wanted people literate was so that when they made propaganda, people would be fearful of them. 
And it's such a weird spin, but it makes such great sense where like they could create their own narrative. And if no one can understand it, then they won't believe What's it. What's the point? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then you've got this guy who's going against it, which is what you would hope. And it's like, nah, man, we're not going to listen to you with all your credibility. It's, it, I can't it's wait to see how it gets spun later on in life. And what I, th- what I really think, and just kind of to tie into your Matrix reference, because I think it's one of the best <laughs> movies ever made, you get the red pill and the blue pill. You know, the red, the blue pill are, you know, to me, that's people that want to bury their head in the sand. And I genuinely believe that it's so much easier. Dude, I'm telling you, it's the universe against you. The last words uttered as soon as you said blue pill was I genuinely believe. It's dude, it's definitely you. You you mentioned the matrix and the computer cut. All right, all right. As soon as you went the blue pill, people want to bury in the sand. I'm I'm, I'm on well yeah, yeah, someone trust me, I'm already on every list known to man, so it's okay. No, um, but it's like the blue pill, like, and to me, it's like people that want to bury their head in the sand. But to that point, it's like, it's so much easier just as a human, as humans to just believe what you're told than it is to think for yourself. And I think that's where a lot of these problems come in. It's like people just like accept it. Like, it's like, okay, that's what government is telling me. Like, that means obviously it's true versus like, I wouldn't mind doing a little bit more like of my own research on this. Not that I'm saying I know better than anyone else, but I kind of wouldn't mind looking into it a little bit and forming my own opinion. And that's where I think it gets dangerous is when you get, when you get too many people that uh, are just burying their heads in the sand or just accepting what they're told blindly and without you know looking into things. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's a bigger fear than my daughter winding up as a stripper, but it's <laughs> definitely equal where it's like, dude, I want you to fucking understand critical thinking. And I don't even know if I'm good at it because I'm, I'm like intuitively lazy. But I do every once in a while when you've like, according to studies, like I will click on the link and like I will oh, be yeah. like, show oh, me a, show me a study. holy shit, it was 30 people in the Congo and we're basing North American East Coast decisions on on that on a a missionary going to the Congo and scrolling some notes and saying, you know what actually helped with malaria. Like no way we would do that. Zero chance. We would say, Oh, this is a new malaria vaccine. It was effective in this one region based on these people in a four month study. Oh, and yeah, but, but yeah. And what's the sample size there? Oh, like 30 people. Okay. Culturally, region, genetics, like there's so many variables and duration. So like, many. Why do you believe you? It's, um, but yeah, that's what I hope. I really hope to impart on my daughter is not like a skepticism, but it's just a, it's okay to be skeptical. You don't have to feel bad because you question. You just got to figure out maybe how to ask questions the right way. Correct. Um, and I think what you just said is exactly it. Just, Asking questions, asking the right questions. And, and to the point you just made a minute ago about uh, you're saying you're intellectually lazy. I somehow don't think that's completely true. But anyway, I'm like kind of the opposite in the sense of my ADHD brain is not capable of that. Like I <laughs> am the guy that I'll be sitting on the couch watching a TV show with my wife, the show that we both really like. And then for no reason whatsoever, I can't, I, I will walk into my office and pull up something on Twitter 
And the next thing I know, I have 15, 20, 30 different tabs open on my browser and I'm reading all these different articles and she'll be 10 minutes later, she'll be like, Hey, are you going to come back and watch this show with me? And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> she's like, what made you go up and get in there or get up and go in there? I'm like, I, I don't know. Right. I just like had a, I had a thought and I like needed to go explore it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I don't know. I, I'm kind of, and especially even more so during like since COVID hit, because I felt like it just always felt there were things that we weren't getting all the info on. So it's like, I wanted to see how much info I could find. And it almost like it made, yeah. It, yeah. It hyped, it like basically put rocket fuel into the ADHD where it's like, I'm just, I have to know everything that's going on at all the t- at all times. And I don't not I don't want that for my daughter because it's a little it's it's a lot sometimes. It just it's mentally overwhelming, but I do want her to be able to just ask questions, be curious. Don't yeah. Do you ever watch the show Ted Lasso? You know, I, I have not, but um the next time I basically give myself one subscription a month. Okay. And then I try to like cancel it and then like bounce around yeah, to the yeah, next yeah, yeah. or whatever. Um, so Apple TV's like three subscriptions away. Okay. <laughs> well, you'll you'll be able to. So the new season of Ted Lasso comes out on Wednesday. It's the third and final. So you'll be like when okay. you do get binge. when you do get to that subscription, you you can be able to binge all three seasons probably. Yeah, that's. I, I, it's funny the fulfillment that I found in this strategy. Of, I like, like it actually. Yeah, dude, like, hey, I'm right now I'm on Peacock and I just canceled that and I've like been rewatching The Office as like the background thing when the ADHD hits me. Yeah. And it's it it's really is like I don't know, man, you save 50, 60, 70 bucks a month and you're like, holy shit, new shows. And then like you appreciate new content versus being like Absolutely. just content click next, click next, click nah, yep. too many options. You know what I'm saying? It, 100%. It's 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 almost like a, a mental overstimulation. Yeah. Uh but like, and you do have my permission to use ADHD in my description, just because. Uh, <laughs> it, it, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure it's fairly obvious to anyone that listens. But, uh, um, man, this is a good conversation. Yeah, well, I, and I don't know if you want to tie up the Ted Lasso part. So yeah, like, I'll tie it up real quick. Just ADHD. There's a there's a there's a line. Yeah, it's exactly fucking proving my point. Uh, no, there's a line in. And one of the, it's one of the later episodes of season one. It's one of the best scenes in television I've seen in a long time. I'll, I'll send it to you after we're done. But he said, uh, you know, I saw this painting on a wall. It was a, it was a quote. It said, be curious, not judgmental. thought it was a good one. Dude, that's a solid quote to end it on. Yeah, that, it, it, I think that I'm hoping that's where, and I almost feel like that's where a lot of the culture that I experience is that where like, if I ask a question and I offend you, it's not from a place of judgment. It's a probably a place of ignorance. And then when yeah. you explain it to me, I'm like super happy to gain understanding because it's nice to be curious. And if we can approach people with like, oh shit, you're being curious. That's why you're saying silly things. Correct. Or, or like be, have, even just like, let's say like a Republican and a Democrat, like, you know, we're on obviously different sides of the political aisle, the Republican and the Democrat. Why can't we still have a reasonable, rational, curious, non-judgmental conversation with each other? Why do we have to be so polarized? That, like that to me is, that's what I hope to avoid moving forward. And so I feel like we should just be able to ask questions respectfully and talk things out. Yeah, ideas. Uh, it, it's um, a Rogan 
quote, or I won't be able to nail it like you did lasses, but it was like when people get, when people's ideas become their identities, that's when they're scared to change. Correct. And to be curious, you have to be willing to accept that. Like I might fucking have this wrong, man. hundred percent. And, and that's a, the thing. It's, it's so hard to admit. Like it's so hard to admit when you're wrong for most people. And whereas like, I don't, if, I, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but at least, <laughs> but I, but I learned something. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the, isn't that the ultimate goal? Yeah. Yeah. That's another thing, actually. Like, that's what we should have done. We should have kept a fucking chart of like what we want our um, girls to be. Cause like, I do want my daughter to be okay being wrong. Like hundred percent fail fast kind of mentality of like, who gives a 100%. fuck if you were wrong, dude? Like, do you know why you were wrong? Cool. That's a win. Now, now your what, loss what, is a win. And what'd you learn? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll do that for, we'll do that on a short story the next time. <laughs> yeah. Right. That'd be, it'd be, Dude, it really is interesting. Just I don't know. Like, the girl dad's the girl dad's wish list. It's it's might be a support club. I hope it's not. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I hope I hope it's not too. Girl dad's wish list. There's something there. There's something there. That could be on the spinoff podcast where we just Perfect. talk about fathers' insecurities. Good idea. Yes. That's a half baked idea. We'll get back to it. All right, man. All right, dude. Well, man, you thank you, Brian, for yeah, letting me kick off the season. I really appreciate all your time and um. All your thoughts, man. Enjoy the uh, enjoy your family. Enjoy the rest of the night. You as well. Appreciate the conversation, brother. Talk soon. Thank you. Huge thanks to Andre Psyche for supporting the Getting to Know You pod. Homeboy's been down since just about day one. If you have not already, search him up, Andre Psyche, on social media. Give my man a follow for the fuck of it. Please, almost more importantly, do not forget to subscribe, rate, and review the Getting to Know You pod on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. Five stars, five stars, five stars. If you have not already, continue with your gracious clicking, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And if you're feeling super generous, as in that ching-ching monetary type, go to our Patreon and support the pod for as little as $2 a month. Oh yeah, and if you know anyone who'd like to be a guest on the pod, go ahead and send their contact info our way. Slide them up into my DMs. Later.